growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. As a whole, throughout history, mankind has been incurably religious. Why? It is not unreasonable to ask the question, where would those beliefs have come from? Where would they have come from? Does God exist? Honestly, most people would answer that question without giving it much thought at all. Of course God exists. Or, no, there is no God. But is there actual evidence we can look at? I'm telling you, everywhere I've been in the world, people are incurably religious. They want to worship something. Man is incurably religious, and this idea must have come from somewhere, and that somewhere must be that there is a God, and that He has placed it within our hearts to know that He is. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're in week three of our series, the I Am series. These first three weeks, we're taking some time to look at the arguments for God's existence. As Pastor Clay keeps saying, and as you'll hear him say again today, God is not trying to prove himself. God is revealing himself. God has nothing to prove to anyone, but God wants everyone to have the opportunity to know him. So God has given us evidence of his existence that can lead any person toward a relationship with God. When you begin to discover who God is and you begin to understand what God expects of you and you surrender to that, listen to me, the man or woman that gets to that place in their life is richer than Bill Gates can ever hope to be. Many in our culture today would say that it's not reasonable or rational to believe in God. But as Pastor Clay is going to point out, it's actually unreasonable to not believe in God. Now here's Pastor Clay. I began my message last week, and I'll explain where we are in just a minute. But I began my message last week, if you were here or if you happen to listen to the, uh, the podcast or watch it on YouTube or that, that sort of thing. Last week, I began my message by asking you these two questions. Who is God and what does God expect of me? If you were here last week, do you remember those questions? Okay. Who is God and what does God expect of me? Honestly, uh, my hope and, and prayer uh, has been that, that the introduction of those two questions last week... W- would to have some extent, and I know the business of the world and is always pushing things out of the way, but to some extent that those questions would have been on your mind uh, this week as you contemplate that idea. Who is God and what does God expect of me? Because listen to me, no matter what else you do with your life, and you may be here and you may think you're moving towards the twilight part of your life, or you may be here and you're, you're young, you're a child, you're a teenager, and you think, man, I've got my whole life in, in front of me. None of us know even tomorrow for sure. We don't, none of us are guaranteed even that. But, but no matter whatever else you do with your life, no matter the accomplishments you achieve or the accolades you receive, you can be as rich as Bill Gates 88 billion and counting, by the way. You can be as famous as the latest A-lister out of Hollywood. Or you can be the uh, average Joe or Josephine just trying to make ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck, wondering how it's all going to work out. You can be either of those or you can be anywhere in between. 
But if you can't answer those two questions, none of it matters. Nothing else matters if you can't get beyond or get past or find the answer to those two questions. Who is God and what does God expect of me? Because when you can answer those questions, when you begin to discover who God is and what God expects of you, forget about the person sitting around you or the person that you're thinking ought to be here in church or whatever else. When you begin to discover what God expects of you and you surrender to it. Because I'm going to tell you something. I know a lot of people that know exactly what God expects of them, but they're not doing it. When you begin to discover who God is and you begin to understand what God expects of you and you surrender to that, <laughs> listen to me. The man or woman that gets to that place in their life is richer than Bill Gates can ever hope to be. And that's the truth. So we're doing this series called The I Am and we're trying to look at some of the things about God that are difficult for us to grasp or may be kind of confusing or some people misunderstand or that sort of thing. That's why we're taking a few weeks to do that because I want all of us to come to a greater understanding of who God is and a greater understanding of what God expects of me as a grown adult, as a married wife or husband, as a, a child in my home, as a teenager getting ready to graduate, wherever we are, whatever stage of life, I want all of us to come to a place where we have a better understanding of, of those two questions and so we're taking a few weeks to delve into some of these things. And as I have said, it seemed to me logical to start with just the very idea of God himself. Uh, the, the idea that I am here. That I am real. That I am God. That I am, that I am uh, in my creation. And that I desire to have be intricately involved in your life. And so we have been looking at some of the arguments for the very existence of God. And if you were not here for some of the previous ones and, and you say, well, I wonder what that is or wonder what that is, I encourage you not only to go back and listen to these messages, but just do some research. Find out what some of these things are. We began a few weeks ago with looking first at what is known as the ontological argument, that which no greater can be thought, uh, if you remember that, if you were here. We started with the ontological argument. And then added to that, we had the cosmological arguments. These are arguments for the existence of God. Somebody says, well, I don't, I don't believe in God. Okay, have you ever considered, and men and women have been considering this for thousands of years, what are some of these arguments? So we started with the ontological argument, we went to the cosmological argument, and then last week uh, we moved into what is known as the teleological argument. And then we finished last week with what... I refer to as the moral argument. The fact that morality exists in the world universally and that where would that morality have come from if there were not a moral, supreme moral agent establishing what was morally right and morally wrong. That was the moral argument. Okay? So we looked at four. We're going to look at two more uh, today, and that's all. And there are lots of arguments for the existence of God, lots of evidences for the existence of God. We're just looking at six of them overall, and then we'll move on to a new subject. All right? Y'all all right? Are y'all spread too far apart? Do I need to put, pack y'all into the center here? So y'all can kind of get each other going? Travis said yeah. So. Said y'all should. All right. Here we go. Let's start with one I'm going to start with today. Uh, this would be uh, number five, I guess, of the, of the six total. It is the religious argument. We're going to start by looking today at what I call, the, or what is known as the religious argument. Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 2 through 4. Let me just read this to kind of 
launch off onto this idea. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in its context, and and many of you are probably familiar with this passage, but in its context, uh, Paul is writing in in chapter 10 there, he's referring to the Jews, uh, to the the nation of Israel and and to the practice of Judaism and uh, the fact that they, that they they had a zeal for God. I mean, they were serious about this. They had a zeal for God. But Paul says it, it, was, it was misfounded because they, they, it, was, it was not based on the truth of God's word. They had misinterpreted, misunderstood uh, how righteousness was obtained. And, and they had established a religion where they thought that they could earn their way uh, to heaven. They could gain God's approval by being good enough or doing enough good things or, or good works. But it, doesn't, it nevertheless points out that they had this zeal for God. You understand? The religious argument basically brings out the fact that human beings, unlike any other living creature in this universe, and yes, that is intended to be a subtle commentary on whether I believe there's life on other planets or not. Human beings, unlike any other living creature in this universe, are incurably religious. It seems that built within mankind himself is the the desire the knowledge to worship, to, to know, to, to express a belief in uh, God in some shape, form, and fashion. Now, now some uh, religion is, uh, is based on ancestors. Some religion is uh, based on the creation, the birds and the sky and the sun and that sort of thing. Some religion is, is based on an, an invisible deity. But the fact is that wherever you go in the world, you will find people worshiping. And archaeologists have substantiated the fact that anywhere and everywhere that human civilization has been found, religion has been found with it. Coupled with that, man's incurably religious nature... Coupled with that is this belief in an afterlife. We have a belief in an afterlife, the belief that the grave is not the end. This seems to be a universal belief, that the grave is not the end, that there's more after this life. Now, a person, an individual, man or woman, may make a personal decision to reject God and say, no, I don't don't believe in God, I don't believe in that. A person may make that decision on their own. But as a whole, throughout history... Mankind has been incurably religious. Why? It is not unreasonable to ask the question, where would those beliefs have come from? Where would they have come from? Now, atheists, humanists, secularists, those who deny the supernatural, deny the existence of God, deny the supernatural realm at all, and are quick to make fun of anyone who does, Quite honestly, the atheists, the secularists, the humanists, they struggle to find an answer to the origins of man's religious nature. Now, they will usually give you the pat answer. Well, 
the idea of God just came out of man's primitive superstitions thousands and thousands of years ago. Man's primitive superstitions uh, created this need for God. Because of his, his fears of the unknown, uh, man created this idea of God. That would be the pat answer that you would hear. Now, let me just say that, number one, it can be debated as to whether man was ever primitive in the sense that they mean it. Second, uh, it can be argued whether inventing the idea of God has ever quelled anyone's fears of the unknown. And third, and more importantly, it does not answer the question of this worldwide. I mean, we're not talking about pockets here and there or whatever. We're talking about this worldwide belief in an afterlife, this worldwide belief in some type of power or deity. Like I said, they're, they're, they may be like those Jews in Romans 10. that They may be unfounded. They may have, have a belief system that's not based on true knowledge, but this worldwide, it doesn't, you can't answer that question. Why is there this worldwide? And it does not answer the question was why, if it was based on man's primitive superstitions and fears, why does the belief in God still uh, uh, exist and carry on and to some ex- many places in the world is growing in modern man's world in the 21st century? Why? Why? The truth is, atheists don't really have a good answer for why religion exists the way it does and continues to exist the way it does. And they would not like to admit this, but the answer is actually quite simple. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In other words, we can never fully comprehend the vastness and the greatness of God, right? We can, none of us are smart enough to fully comprehend the, the greatness, the vastness, uh, the grandeur of who God is. But yet God has placed it within the heart of man to know that he is. He may not ever understand it all, but God has placed it within the heart of man to know that there's more beyond this Life, that essentially is the religious argument. Listen, I know that secularism may be growing uh, here in the United States and, and in Western Europe, but I can assure you that the idea of religion, the belief in, the here, in life after and all this kind of stuff is, is strong and doing quite well in most of the rest of the world. I've been a lot of places in this world and everywhere I have ever been, I have found people worshiping something. I've, I've seen people at, at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning answer the, call, answer the Mulah's call to prayer in Kenya. I've seen uh, Chinese people uh, worshiping their ancestors and, and preparing meals and setting meals at the graveside of their, of their ancestors. I've seen Buddhist monks uh, lighting incense as, as prayers to Buddha. I've seen a funeral procession where uh, the, the funeral procession, the people all involved in the funeral procession are setting off firecrackers and, and pounding on pots and pans and making as much noise as possible so that uh, their loved one who has just passed on, uh, so the evil spirits will be kept away and they can pass on into the afterlife. I've seen evidence of animistic worship in, in, in places like Haiti and Sri Lanka. And I'm telling you, everywhere I've been in the world, people are incurably religious. They want to worship something. Why? Where would that come from? God says he's placed it within the heart of man to know that he is. 
they need a fuller knowledge. They need to know the truth. They need to know the gospel. Uh, that's you and me, y'all. That's our responsibility. But, so that's the religious argument, the idea that, that man is incurably religious and this idea must have come from somewhere and that somewhere must be that there is a God and that he has placed it within our hearts to know that he is. Okay, that's the religious argument. Let me give you one more argument uh, to look at uh, today. It is the Jesus argument. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, uh, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Would y'all say that with me out loud? For in him all fullness deity dwells in bodily form. For in him all the fullness of deity. What is deity? God, the Godhead. For in him, in, in Jesus, in the context, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I freely admit to you, this is my favorite argument. All the arguments for the existence of God are fine and good. They all have merit. They're all worth considering. But this is my favorite argument for the sheer simplicity of it. The sheer simplicity of this argument boggles the mind. The argument is basically this. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, then God exists. Because Jesus claimed to be God. That is the argument. Why, why is there a need to look any further? To look into the cosmos of the universe. Fine, good. Like I said, it's all valid arguments. Good to look at. But Jesus claimed to be God. If the evidence reveals that his claim is accurate, then God exists. Because that's what Jesus claimed. I know I've said this, I think, each week that I've talked about this. But uh, this series is entitled the I Am series because it is based on what uh, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses uh, asked God, he said, well, well you know, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to tell the Israelites that you've sent me down here to set them free, but what if they say, well, we don't know you, who, 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 who sent you? And, and in Exodus 3, God says, you tell them, I am, I am, has sent you. It, 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 it was, it, it's a very personal, it's what God revealed about himself. It was God's personal name for himself that he gave to Moses and, and to the people of Israel. It became very sacred and holy to them. He is the self-existing, ever-existing, everywhere-existing God. That's essentially what, how you could define the I Am. He's the self-existing, ever-existing, everywhere-existing God. Can you all say that with me out loud? Is that up on the screen? Say it with me. He is the self-existing, ever-existing, everywhere-existing God. Say it one more time. He is the self-existing, ever-existing, everywhere-existing God. It was a very personal name to the Jews. So imagine the hornet's nest that Jesus stirs up about 1,500 years later when he comes along and in a debate with the religious leaders about his authority, whether he had the authority to do this or that, in a debate about his authority, we find this in John chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking at first. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you understand what just happened there? Jesus just used the sacred, holy, personal name of God 
for himself. Jesus was claiming to be God. And if you doubt, well, I don't know if that's exactly what he was claiming. If you doubt that, then you need to understand that the religious leaders that he was arguing with, they sure understood what he was trying to say because the very next verse says to us that they picked up stones to stone him to death because they understood he was claiming to be God. It is the Jesus argument. He claimed to be God. If the evidence reveals that he was who he claimed to be, God therefore exists. Because Jesus existed and much more. So, let's get into this. What are some of the evidences that Jesus was who he claimed to be? What are some of the evidences from his life, from his actions, uh, that, that reveal to us that, that, may, that there's credence to this, that he, he's claiming to be God? How do we have evidence of that? Well, in Matthew chapter 8, he showed that he had authority. Over the creation, when he calmed the storms, he said to the winds and the seas, Be still. Be still. Also in Matthew chapter 8, he showed that he had authority over the demons when he cast uh, demons out of, of two men living in the, among the tombs in an area known as the Gadarenes. In Luke uh, chapter 9, he showed he had authority over matter itself when he took two fish and five small loaves of bread, and he fed more than 5,000 people. In Mark chapter 5, he showed he had authority over death when he raised a little girl from the dead. In John chapter 11, he did the same thing for a guy named Lazarus. Listen, and, and I'm just, I just pick out just a few there. You go on and on and on and on with, with evidence after evidence of his life and what he did. Listen, do you know what you call somebody that had that kind of authority, that kind of power over everything and everyone? You know what you call somebody like that? God, that's right. God, listen to me. Both the Bible as an historical document and secular, non-biblical textual evidence, historians of that day, all confirm that Jesus of Nazareth lived in Israel and Palestine in the first century. No question. They also confirm that he gathered a following, undisputed by any rational historian, that he gathered a following and that that following, his followers, believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah, established fact of history. They also confirm that he got into trouble in some way and somehow, maybe trying to get one up on him, but however they say it, they would say that it's also confirmed that Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders of his day, and it is also confirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was put to death by the Romans outside of Jerusalem by crucifixion. As far as ancient uh, historical claims go, those are as ironclad as any ancient historical claim can be. They're substantiated, substantiated, substantiated. And added to that, to those facts, is one more what really should be an undisputed fact. And that is the missing body, the empty tomb. Now remember, I'm building a case for the fact that Jesus was God. So I've, I've got to show you, how, do we, how can we prove that he was God? How can we see that he was God? The empty tomb. That is equally uh, an unquestionable fact. Let me explain to you why. If the Jewish religious leaders wanted to stop the spread of Christianity, 
and there is no question about that they want it to stop the spread of Christianity, right? There's no question that the religious leaders hated this Jesus movement, hated his followers, wanted to stop this thing once and for all because it was going to change everything. So there's no question that they wanted to stop and, in fact, did try to stop the spread of Christianity, right? No question about that. So think about this now. This is, this is important. Listen to me. If you want it to stop the spread of Christianity, and they did, but if, you, if, if this thing's just getting started and, and you want to squash it, you want to put it to rest once and for all, what is the simplest way to do that? Right? Just produce the body. That's all you've got to do. And it is quite rational to assume that that is exactly what they would have done if they could have done it. Because, because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, case closed. If you want to slam the door on this Jesus movement, because listen, it, it is historically established that it was the, the claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that ignited the explosion of growth of the, ch- of the church. No question, that's what ignited the explosion of growth to the church, was the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So if you want to stop this, things in its track, this thing in its tracks, all you have to do is go down to the cemetery, roll back the stone, and say, hey, come here. Look in here. There's your Jesus, Huckleberry. Dead and decaying. That's all they got to do. And it's game over. Game, set, match. But they didn't do it. And the only plausible, rational explanation for why they would not have done it is because the body was gone. Which then leads to the mother of all questions. What happened to the body? It is the mother of all questions because, quite honestly, it's it's all that matters. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15 17, the Apostle Paul said, If Christ was not raised from the dead, your faith is worth nothing. Still living in your sins. I've said this many times from this platform. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, pack up your stuff, man. Let's get out of here. Y'all don't even like me that much to be around me, to hang, listen to me for this long. If, if the, if, if, you understand? He didn't rise from the dead. But if he did, if he actually, literally, physically got up and walked out of that tomb, that first Easter morning, that in itself would, I think anybody would, would readily confess and admit, that in itself would be a supernatural act. A supernatural thing that happened. And it would therefore, by definition, require a supernatural power to pull that off. To, to bring a guy back to life who's been dead in the grave, cold, he didn't just pass out and the coroner made a mistake. He's three days dead in the ground. And so if he gets up, walks out of that tomb, and appears to hundreds of eyewitnesses, then that in itself requires a supernatural power. Therefore, God exists. That is the Jesus argument. Let me give you just, real quickly, a few quotes about this, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, because, like I've said, everything, everything rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he didn't rise from the dead... None of this matters. Let's go home. If he did rise from the dead, then, he, then he's proving that he was who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. Therefore, God exists. And let me give you a few quotes. And uh, especially the first few of these are not from people. Because I, I, I want you to understand, I'm not just cherry picking or whatever. These are not from people that would be considered, you know, orthodox Christianity. Okay? Let's start with Rudolf Boltman. 
if you don't know who that is, it's okay. You, Boltman said, I'm sure that the disciples saw Jesus after his death. Let's, let's run on over to Chapel Hill. Let's look at Bart, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a distinguished professor of religious studies or something at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Bart Ehrman uh, said this, that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a, say it, fact. Say it again. Fact. The fact, he says, that the followers of Jesus and later Paul had resurrection experiences. That's a fact, this guy says. Now, listen to what he says. What the reality was that gave rise to those experiences, I do not know. In other words, Airmen... Bart Ehrman does not believe in a literal bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has, a, he has a foregone bias against supernatural, against miraculous. He does not believe in the miraculous, does not believe in the supernatural. Kind of scary to think that this guy is teaching every one of your incoming freshmen at UNC, isn't it? In your religious studies. Does not believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He doesn't, because he doesn't believe in supernatural. But at least he has the intellectual honesty to admit that the disciples sure believed it and they were there. They were the ones who were there. So he may have a bias against the supernatural, but he says it's absolutely established fact that they, they believe they saw the risen Christ. Then he goes on, let me give you another Airman quote. He goes on and he says, finally we know after his death his followers experienced what they described as the resurrection. The appearance of a living but transformed person who had actually died. And look what he says. They believed this they lived it, and they died for it. All right, in case you think I'm being just favoring UNC, let's go to another shade of blue. Let's go to, to E.P. Sanders. He's not anymore. He's retired professor of religion at Duke University. E.P. Sanders uh, said this. It may be taken as historically, what's that word? Certain. Histor- Notice what he says. Not religiously certain. Historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. I'll give you one more, N.T. Wright, definitely more orthodox in his theology than than those guys. But N.T. Wright said this, these three great, I'm sorry, what's that word? Facts. These three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, because it had to be empty, there's no question, it had to be empty, and the origin of the Christian faith, the explosion of growth because of the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. These three great facts all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. And look look at what he says. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. You see what he said? Facts. These facts. A rational person would believe in the resurrection. In other words, it is actually irrational, illogical, and unreasonable to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. I'm telling you, the truth is, it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it takes to believe in the resurrection. When you look at the evidence. When you look at the accumulated evidence that that we can gather from an event that occurred 2,000 years ago. It is irrational, irrational, illogical. It it makes no sense at all to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said this every week. Let me say it again. 
this, at least this last time, God is not trying to prove himself. God is revealing himself. And in the life, in the actions, in the miracles, and especially in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ was revealing that he was exactly who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. Now, let me close this out by essentially repeating what I said last week. All of the arguments for the existence of God, and there are many more, but all the arguments for the existence of God that we've looked at and all the others, they're good, they're fine, they're worth looking at, and I encourage you to do further study on not only those arguments, but other arguments for the existence of God and how people try and, try and answer those, those arguments or those evidences. I encourage you to do further study. I, 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 I encourage you to, uh, to, to look at this and, and grapple with it because, A, if you don't believe, I, I want you to. And B, if you do believe, I want you to understand just how firm a foundation your belief is actually built on. And C, because there is in this world today, or certainly within our culture, there is somehow this belief that, that, that rationalism and, and reason and, and, and logic, that somehow those are incompatible with faith. And they're not. They're not. So you look at the evidences, you look at all this stuff, and you come to believe, yes, God is exists. As I said last week, after spending three weeks now looking at these, it may sound strange to you then when I say, so what? So what if you believe that God exists? Says James, and I'll bring it up again, as James says in James chapter 2 and verse 19, you say you have faith, for you believe there's one God, good for you. And as I said last week, good for you. That's the way he wrote it, good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. And as I said again last week, I'll say it again this week. You see, belief in God, while it is important, it, it, you have to have a starting point. You have to have some point where you say, yeah, man, I can't escape this. This, this thing is real. It's, the evidence is just too overwhelming when you look at all this and, and when you put it all together. It's just, it's just too overwhelming that God is real. And, and based on this last argument we've looked at, man, Jesus is real and Jesus really is God. Having all that knowledge in and of itself it's, is not enough. Having that knowledge will not answer those two questions we started with. Who is God and what does God expect of me? Believing in God won't answer those questions. You can start there, but you must move past there because you must move past religion. And as we've looked at today, the world is incurably religious and people worship all different kinds of things and all different kinds of people and all different kinds of ideas and all different kinds of, of ways. But the Word of God says that real religion begins with a relationship with Him. Begins with not knowing just that he is, but knowing him. And you know him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The whole point in Jesus' coming, the whole point in all of this, was so that you and me and any other person on this planet that would desire to know him in a personal, intimate way, that that couldn't be made possible. See, it wasn't possible before the cross. But after the cross and after the resurrection... After he walked out of that tomb that first Easter morning, then it was suddenly possible for you and me and everyone else to know him personally, intimately. So, I just leave you with this. Do you know him in a real, personal, intimate way? And do you know what he expects of you? Of you. Forget about everybody else. What does God expect of you? And are you surrendered to that? 
As you've heard today, the evidence for God is pretty compelling. But as you also heard Pastor Clay say, believing in God is not enough. The Apostle James reminds us that the demons believe in God, but they certainly don't have a saving relationship with Him. God doesn't just want us to know that He is. God wants us to know Him personally. God wants us to experience the joy and fulfillment that only comes through a relationship with God. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.